The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It's awesome to celebrate baptism. What a great uh, baptism. It's a great testimony of an outward testimony of an inward change that has taken place whenever we uh, put our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're continuing our studies in, in uh, the, the discourses of Matthew, and there's five of them. We're in the fourth. We're about halfway through our fourth discourse. Uh, and a discourse is just simply where Jesus has an extended teaching time, and Matthew records it in the, in the Gospel of Matthew for us. And so we've been wor- working our way through. The most famous one is the first one, the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people have heard of that one. Uh, but we're in the fourth one. And the fourth one, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it should be like among his people. What should the church be like he didn't use the word church because this is before the church term came about. But the church should be described, he said, as a humble people. That we should be a very humble people because the very thing that creates the church is humility. A recognition that I am a sinner needing the grace of God, needing forgiveness. And so church is not this pious religious people. The church is a humble people who recognize that their salvation is a gift from God through faith in Jesus. He also said they should be a holy people. That meaning that we should aspire to holiness, we should work towards holiness. And the emphasis that we've seen Jesus is saying that we should lock arms together, take responsibility for one another's holiness, encourage each other, pray for each other, teach each other, help each other, aspire to be the holy people that God has called us to be. And so we've saw, we've seen that and he's used the child as an analogy throughout that the child is not is not self Uh, determining is not authoritative, does not have authority and resources and power. They're very uh, dependent people. We depend as children on our parents for everything, for guidance, for provision, for direction, for wisdom. And so he's been saying, my people should be like children in that sense, that the Father God provides all our needs through faith in Christ. And so today he comes to a very interesting text that I think is extraordinarily relevant to us, especially this specific church, Norris Ferry. If I want to begin just by asking you to uh, think in your own mind, think of people groups, think of types or personality types maybe, maybe it's uh, certain characteristics about people that you would say, what type of person would you say, if Jesus had to pick someone to be the most challenging people to save, what people would that be? Isn't that an interesting question? First of all, it almost feels wrong to ask that question, doesn't it? Well, that's where he kind of leads us to. What would be the most challenging type of people or type of person to save, if you will? There you, what, yeah, I think I heard rich, successful, rich, and then what was the last one? Politicians. Okay, yeah. Right. Amen, brother. I think we all got that one. Yeah, so there's all types of things that come to our mind when we say that, like the first service, the first answer was, uh, uh, what would they call them? Dirty scoundrels? Something like that. Rotten, dirty, rotten scoundrels or something like that. And the idea in that situation was that they, they've done us wrong and they continue to do us wrong and they're just not good people. And so what do we think of when we think about the hardest type person to save, and we've already got the answer, spoiler alert, but let's just keep rolling. Pretend that you need to hear this message anyway. So uh, what we see today is Jesus gets to that very issue as he has this encounter with this man, and he says to him, this is what, it must do, this is what you must do to have eternal life, and he walks away very sad, and the disciples are shocked 
We're going to see the disciples are astonished, it says, greatly astonished that, that if this person can't be saved, well, then who in the world can be saved is what we see in this encounter. Let me ask the Lord to help us this morning, ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word and to work in our hearts. Father God, would you speak to us this morning as we look at your sacred scriptures that you would teach us that every heart in this room would be open to hear what you have to say to them, that I would be open to what you have to say to me, and that we would learn together from you, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in this encounter, we're going to look through this dialogue that Jesus has with them. We're just going to work through it verse by verse. Look at verse 16. It says, Behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, let's stop there and think a minute about this man. Let's build a profile of this man. From this verse, we can learn a few things about him. First of all, we learn that he seems to be a sincere seeker. He seems to genuinely want to know how to have eternal life. What, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So he seems to be, the best we can tell, a sincere seeker. We also can tell he's probably Jewish because he calls Jesus teacher or rabbi. So he's a sincere Jewish seeker of eternal life. And when he asked him, he, he, we see through other verses, there's some other things we can know about him. We see in these verses that he is one who is very serious about keeping the commands. We're going to see that in just a minute. So he's, he's moral, he's ethical, he's religious. We also see that in... Luke's gospel, he says he's a ruler. And that probably means that he's a religious leader, a scribe or a Pharisee. So, and we also see he's young in this passage. So when we kind of build this profile of who this man is, he's this rich, young, powerful, sincere, ethical, moral, religious leader. I think if any of us said, who do you think is the hardest person that, to enter the kingdom of heaven, hardest, most unlikely person to get saved, I don't, I don't think this is the guy I'm picturing. Politicians maybe, but not this guy. And so we're going to say, okay, this guy seems to be sincere. He comes to Jesus, but look at the presumption of his question. We already see as Bible readers, there's a problem. In his presumption, he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I think that if you were to ask most people in our city what it takes to have eternal life, good deeds is 90% of the time, good deeds is going to come up in the answer. Best case scenario, maybe of, of wrong answers, the best case scenario of wrong answers probably would be Jesus plus good deeds. A lot of people may just say good deeds without mentioning Jesus. This is a very common situation. In fact, I think this guy lives in my neighborhood. This is a very relevant text. It's people who have resources, people who have power, a person who has uh, intellect, ability. He's risen up in his class. He's a leader. He's got money. And he's sincere, he's religious, he's fitting in with the cultural norms. He's trying to do the best he can. He's a good guy. And he comes to Jesus and he says, well, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So how does Jesus respond to him? At this point, as a Christian, as a 
Bible reader, I want Jesus to say one thing. Repent and believe in me. But he doesn't do that. And it bugs me this whole week. I'm like, why? Why? Why are you doing this? And I think it's because he's meeting him where he is, and he's taking him on a journey to the point where he can receive this message and see it for himself. So what does Jesus say to him when this this man, this good man, in the world's eyes, this good man says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. What does that mean? Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. He's not saying, I'm not good. You should ask someone else who is good. He's saying, you're not good. He's recalibrating his good scale. You see, what we do is we compare ourselves to others. We say, okay, I did this. He doesn't do that. I tell the truth. I'm not a politician. I'm not doing this, that, and the other. I know there's some good politicians out there. Don't get me wrong. But the point is, we calibrate our good scale based on comparing ourselves to others. That as long as we find people who are not as good as we are, we consider ourselves good. And then we think that we can do something good that would be of merit to God, that God would say, hey, that's good. I'm going to give you credit for that. Come on in. Enjoy eternal life. And Jesus is going to slowly dismantle that idea in this passage. He's recalibrating good. He says, why do you ask me about good? There is only one who is good, and it's not you. God is good, God is perfect, God is holy. And so for us to think that we could do anything that God would see as, wow, that was really good. Let me give you some eternal life because you have merited that is just not in the biblical picture. That's not even a possibility. The scriptures makes it clear that in comparison to God and in God's plan of salvation, none of us is good. In fact, it says even even more offensive to our flesh, to our pride, is that even your best good deeds, even your goodest deeds, if you will, that, that you would think that would give you some good with God, they're like filthy rags before God. It's like... It's like the fruit of a tree. It looks good. It, it may even, maybe it tastes good. It looks good. But the problem is that tree's roots are deeply planted in toxic soil. And so even the things that we think are good are poisoned and laced with, with sin, with things that are unpleasing to God. And so we can't offer anything of good value to God to merit anything with God. Good is a relative term, in other words. I grew up with a bunch of American boys who played football. I played soccer. And so I always played football. I love football, too. We played flag football team, and we thought we were all that. And then one day, I had the great idea. I said, hey, why don't we play soccer? And so I got all these football player friends of mine on a team, and we played indoor soccer. It was a disaster. I mean, they were breaking shins. They were kicking guys. They were getting in fights. Jeff Howard still says it was me who was starting the fights. Don't listen to him. He's a liar and a friend of mine. But it was ugly. But in their standard, I was a good soccer player. And so only because I had actually played once before. And so I could dribble. And so I asked them, what if I imagine I asked them, hey, am I a good player? They would probably never admit it. But if I could get them to say it, they'd say, yeah, you're good. 
Now, what if I then said, okay, well, I'm going to go try out for Barcelona. And they'd say, oh, no, Messi, he's good. You're not good. There's only one player who's good, and that's Lionel Messi, and you're no Lionel Messi. That's what Jesus is saying. He's, listen, you think you're good. Others say you're good. You're, You're rising in the religious scale of good, but let me tell you something. There's only one who is good, and it's God. And so he's recalibrating our good scale, if you will. And so after challenging this presumption that's in the question, this presumption that I can do something good to merit eternal life, what does Jesus next do? He, he works with him, continuing along his line of thinking. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commands. And so the guy's thinking, I can keep commands and be good. I can do a good deed, and I can enter eternal life through that path. And Jesus says, okay, well, let's talk about that. He says, if you would enter life, verse 17, keep the commands, And then in verse 18, he says, well, which ones? And Jesus said, well, let's name a few. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. If if Jesus was talking to you after going through the Sermon on the Mount and he said, well, you want to be good enough to go to heaven? Let me give you some things. And he goes through the, these five last parts of the Ten Commandments and tops it off with the, with the totality of love your neighbor as yourself. When he told you this list, don't kill, don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery, what would you be doing? Well, I'll tell you what this, this man was probably doing. He was probably going, do not murder, check. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not steal, Check. Do not lie. Eh, check. Do not commit adultery. Oh, excuse me. Do not oh, honor your parents. Check. Love others. Well, as long as he's talking about love other Jews, the people that are like me, then yeah. Check. But what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount on all these? He's just covered all this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says... Okay, well, let's revisit this list. Do not murder. Check. Oh, really? Well, do you not know? You've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, anger is tantamount to murder. Oh, wait a minute now. Now, I've been angry before. Okay, well, the next one was do not commit adultery. Check. No, he says, wait a minute. You've heard it said, do not not commit adultery. But I say to you, If you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Oh, wait a minute now. He says, do not steal. Okay, well, I've never actually stolen anything. Okay, well, maybe you uh, were greedy, and I tell you greed is in your heart, then it's the same as stealing. Or do not lie. Or maybe I haven't actually told a lie, but I've shaded the truth. I've I've manipulated. I've I've been conniving, and I've kind of worked the system. Uh, Honor your parents. Well, I mean, for the most part, obey. But if you're talking about perfectly obey, maybe I'm not so good. And love other Well, I can love people that are like me until I don't like them anymore, and then I don't love them. But as long as they're doing what I want them to do, then all of a sudden you realize I'm not keeping in this checklist so well. And that's his point. He says, you haven't kept the commands. 
It's not about just some moral outward behavior that is, that is uh, seeping down to the lowest common denominator of what we all agree is, yeah, that, that counts as not murder. You didn't actually physically kill them. You're good. That's what God wanted. And Jesus has been dismantling that chain of thought for us, saying you can't just work off a tick box. You can't just work off your checklist and say, I've done good. I'm good enough. I've obeyed enough. I've earned righteousness. I want to go to heaven. That's not how it works. So what does he say in verse 20? You can tell this is exactly what he's thinking. The young man said to Jesus, all these I have kept. I did it. I've kept these. But notice what's next. I think this is so interesting. He says, what do I still lack? We heard that in one of the testimonies. Something was still lacking. Isn't that interesting? Here is a guy who is as good as it gets in human standards. He's rich, he's young, he's powerful, he's ethical, he's moral, he's religious, he's keeping the commands, he's doing it all, he's sincere, he's coming to Jesus, he respects Jesus, he thinks highly of Jesus, he thinks he's a good, wise, moral teacher. And he says, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, here's what it is. And he says, I've done all that, but I'm still lacking. What? is it that's still lacking? You see, this is what happens to anyone who lets legalism creep into their mindset. Legalism is just this idea. He's a picture of the legalist. Legalist is the one who thinks, if I just do enough good, I'll be okay with God. Like there's some scale of good and bad. And if we just do more good than bad, we're going to be all right. When Jesus says, no, the scale is all bad in terms of earning something with God. And so you need to get to the point where you realize, I can't be good enough. I need salvation as a gift. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. It's a gift from God through faith in Christ. But as soon as we start changing the formula, the formula that God says is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the formula too often for us is Jesus plus something. But Jesus plus something equals nothing. And so Jesus is trying to work this man down, just peeling one layer of pain off after another, saying good works, good works, good works, good works, good deeds, good deeds, commands, commands. All of these things that you are putting your hope and your trust in as a way of being acceptable to God, he's just ripping them apart one by one. And so far, I think the guy's kind of falling with him. He's going, okay, all right, so, so I can't, all right, so yeah, I think I'm good. But what is it? What is it? I'm looking for that punch. What is that thing that I still lack? Deep down inside, all of us know if we think we're going to have to be right with God by our deeds, some people are just more honest, uh, more honest about it. Some people, I know people, I have family members that said, I went headlong into sin because I knew I couldn't be good enough. And so once I realized I couldn't be good enough, I just said, well, then forget it and walk away. Until they then... God opened their eyes to see the grace of God that you can be made good enough by faith in Christ. And then it revolutionary, revolutionized their life. But until we get to that point, as long as we think that it's 
just Jesus plus doing good enough, we're going to live with that nagging feeling, what do I still lack? In verse 21, Jesus finally gets down to the root problem. Look what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to him, he said, what do I still lack? He said, if you will be pretty good, if you will be really, really, really good. No, he says, if you will be perfect. Go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Ouch. We've gotten to the heart of the issue now. He's been peeling one layer at a time, and now he's getting to the heart of it. You see, Jesus has drilled down to the need, and the need is perfection. None of us is perfect. I think all of us would admit that. Well, I mean, I'm not perfect. Well, God is perfect. God demands perfection. He doesn't demand pretty good. He doesn't demand really, really, really good. He demands perfection. And so that leaves us all humbled, bankrupt spiritually, and the same place. There's no, there's no hierarchy here. I'm no better than anyone else. Paul says, Paul, the apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. That just because I stand up here on a platform, that's only so they can see me. It's not because I'm better. It's because I need to be visible so people can follow the lesson. And the lesson is this, that we are all sinners and none of us is perfect. And we all need perfection. So what do we do? We throw ourselves on the mercies of God and we take him at his word. And he said, I'll make you perfect by trusting in Jesus. Amen? And that's the gospel. And so Jesus has been rooting down layer after layer, getting to this point. What is lacking? I'll tell you what's lacking in this guy. He doesn't want to transfer his hopes, his confidence, his, his security, his dreams, his future from his possessions to Jesus. And that's where Jesus hits him. He said, listen, you can't put confidence in doing good deeds. You can't put security and confidence in keeping the commands. And you can't put security and confidence and hope in your possessions, in your money, in your power. And what does that really mean? When we put our hope and our security and our confidence in our Money, our possessions, and power. Are we sitting there thinking that those things, those inanimate objects like a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill or a big fat bank account or wallet, we think they're going to do something for us? No. What it really is, is we want to be God. We want to be God. We are a powerful people. We have possessions. We have money. We have ability. We want a building. If I promise you, we work hard enough. We got the resources. We'll build a building. You want something? You go get it. You've got the money, the power, the resources. You do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, whatever you want, whenever you want. Nothing stops you. And it feels good. It feels like a God. I don't need God to do anything in my life. I don't need him to make me feel safe. I've got a big fat bank account. I don't need him to secure my hopes for the future. I'll earn my way there. I got this. Why in the world would I want to submit myself? Why would I want to become a child 
who has no self-determination, has no possessions, has no authority, sits at the card table at Thanksgiving. Why would I want to be that kid when I can be the man carving the turkey? And that's the problem. That's why Jesus says what he says. In verse 23, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? Why did he go away sorrowful? For, reason, for he had great possessions. Think about it. Think about the scene. Think about yourself. You walk to Jesus. You've got, you're young, you're rich, you're powerful, you're religious, you're ethical, you're moral, you're working hard, you're trying to provide, and you're doing all you can. You just think, I just want to go to eternal life. Is that too much to ask? And so you come to Jesus. I respect you, Jesus. You seem to be a religious, moral teacher. What must I do to enter heaven? He says, I'll give you all that, but you got to walk away from your false gods, from your money, your power, and these things that you're putting your hope in, your trust in, yourself, basically. you got to walk away. Quit thinking it's going to be up to you to do it and just put your faith and trust in me. And you just go, oh, gosh. And walk away sorrowful. He walked away with great sorrow, implying he does not get eternal life. But Why? No one made him do that. He had his answer. Jesus didn't trick him. He wasn't confusing him. He wasn't speaking in parables. He simply said, you must love me more than you love your stuff. And he walked away because he had a lot of stuff. Money had a grip on this man. Money owned him. Possessions owned him. Pride owned him. He felt like a God and he liked it. He didn't want to admit he's not. He didn't want to turn to God and let God be God. He didn't want to transfer his affections, his confidence, his hopes, his securities only in Jesus as God. Jesus said, come and follow me. And the other disciples that we saw already called to be fishers of men, They walked away. They walked away from their successful businesses because in their particular situation, to follow Jesus meant to turn and become the founders of the church that we now see worldwide. He said, walk away from that, follow me, and we'll make fishers of men. And they dropped it all, and they walked away. This man, he said, drop it all, follow me. And he said, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And so he walked away filled with great sorrow. It's kind of like going off to college. You know how it is. You go off to college and you are living the dream. My kid is over there living the dream on my wallet. I mean, just living the dream. Traveling here, going there, go to class for like 45 minutes, come home the rest of the day, having a ball. Nobody's telling her what to do, when to do, how to do it, where to do it, and why to do it. And I'm paying for it. And then she comes home in my house one weekend and I ask her to pick up something and she's like, really? I'm like, oh, forgive me. I forgot you're the independent one now. She doesn't really do it that bad, but I know it's raging in her heart. 
Because you're like, you've tasted independence. You've tasted authority. You've tasted what it's like to be the boss of your own life. And you come home. I still remember that summer I came home from college before I had my, pay, my first paycheck. And it was three long months for all of us. <laughs> you see, we've all tasted what it feels like to be God. But we're not God. And if we fall in love with this world and the things of this world and the powers of life and the, and the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and, and all that we can do in self-determination and, and just doing whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it, it's really hard to become like a child and to put everything you got in Jesus' hands. That's why it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Occasionally I'll have people joke with me, boy, now where are you preaching? I started church out in the North Fair area. Where's that? Well, southeast part of Shreveport. Uh, where's that? You know, North Ferry Road. Yeah, where's that? You know where Southern Trace Country Club is? Yeah. Oh, suffering for Jesus. And I just smile, yeah, I know, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> but you know, I don't really say that. I, children do not use those words. <laughs> That's like three weeks in a row now. <laughs> Parents are cleaning up behind me, I'm sorry. So, but think about it. Some of the hardest hearts to reach are people who think they don't have any needs. That's what Jesus is saying. By any standard, by any scale, every single person in here is rich in this earth. Richest people on the planet right here. We don't think we're that rich. I tried to do a little research of what the scale is of average income across the globe, nation, worldwide. And it gets kind of crazy because if you think about South Sudan, I mean, how do you measure someone who harvests enough sorghum? To, turn, to go into town and sell it, to buy milk, to come back home, to survive that day. I mean, that just doesn't fit on an economic scale. But on any scale that can be measured, supposedly the worldwide average income is 17000 something a year. That doesn't count the person doing what I just described. So by any standard, we are this rich, young ruler. Sincere ethical, moral, trying to keep the commands, trying to be faithful. And Jesus says, I got to be your God, and I give you eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You just have to quit being God and let me be God. It's really hard for people with a lot of wealth to do that. Jesus says to his disciples after this, he turned his disciples who were greatly astonished in verse 25. It says the disciples were greatly astonished. Well, then who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
money, possessions, power, being God has a grip on your heart, ask God to release you from the grip. And he will. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Is he worth it? And really that's what is at the heart of this question. Do you have faith to believe that God is worth it? Following Jesus is worth it. That saying, God, whatever you want from me, I'll do it. That's the scary question. That's what holds a lot of people back. Like, ah, I want to know first what you're going to ask of me. He says, no, I want you to say whatever I ask of you. I'm the God here. I'll follow you, Jesus. Okay, is it worth it? And that's what the next few verses we're going to briefly describe 27 through 30, but next week we're going to look at in much more detail the rewards. Is it worth it? Look at Peter said. See, we've left everything and followed you. What happened there? Peter, Jesus said to this young man who came up to him and said, you know, what should I do? And he said, sell everything and you'll have rewards in heaven. Peter's like, we did that. What's my reward? What am I going to get in heaven? And so he says, we left everything. What, what will we have then? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, have followed, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children and lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. The last will be first. Next week, we'll look more at all this. What does that mean? First will last, last will first. But here's the point Jesus is saying. It is worth it. It is worth it. No matter what the cost, no matter what you walk away from, no matter what following Jesus ends up meaning in your life, no matter what Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. Whatever the cost, it will be nothing compared to the rewards in eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's worth it? God says, I promise you it's worth it. Don't walk away sad. Father God, we praise you and thank you that you give us life. Life with purpose and meaning, abundant life. That you raise us up from the dead. As we saw in baptism, we celebrate that Oh, it's so worth it. It's so worth it to, to have all that the world has to offer, but to lose our soul, to walk around with this sense of what do I still lack? Oh, God, help us to see that you are so worthy, that you give us life out of death. You give us victory. You call us to walk out of that grave. Lord, as we sing this song, would you fill us with the joy of faith? Would you give us hearts to believe, mouths to rejoice with song that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have given us life, you have given us purpose, you have given us riches that will last eternally. May we praise you for all the days of our life as we sing together that you've called us and we walked out of that grave. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.